Years ago when I was teaching in Bible college, um, Esther and I were remodeling our kitchen. Uh, we tore the entire kitchen down to studs. We uh, added a vault ceiling, a lot of new lighting, um, kind of overdid the lighting, which I normally do. I hate dark, uh, so I put in way too many lights for a small kitchen. And we rebuilt the kitchen back to Esther's like dream kitchen for that space. Uh, and, uh, and when we were in the demo phase, my best friend at the time and I uh, were scraping up the old floor. Um, he, was, uh, he was one of my Bible college students at the time, and he brought another uh, gal with him who was one of the Bible college students. And, and uh, she and Esther were sitting on our couch looking at photo albums and, uh, while Giuseppe and I were in scraping the, the kitchen floor up. And while we were scraping the floor, we uh, it's pretty labor-intensive. Um, while we were uh, scraping, we were debating theology. And it started out mellow enough, but it quickly boiled into kind of this raging argument. And we're kind of really going at it, you know, voices raised, kind of yelling at each other, you know, probably being more heated than we needed to be. Uh, but mind you, we never stopped scraping. So uh, our voices and our word choices maybe even the intensity added to the intensity of the scraping, but we're, we're working and we're hollering at each other and, and, uh, and it's all over this kind of theological discussion that we're having. But the funny part is that, uh, this argument was not at all unusual and it was pretty normal for Giuseppe and I to, to debate like this. Um, but Kelly, the gal who came with Giuseppe, um, while Esther was telling her, uh, stories about each of these pictures is committing about 90% of her, her attention to listening to us fight with this really concerned kind of look on her face, like really worried about the intensity with which we're fighting. She's kind of judging for that moment when this turns into a fist fight. Um, so at one point she leaned into Esther, who's still kind of going through pictures and, uh, uh, and Esther at this point is completely ignoring us. She's so used to this. But Kelly asked her, like, is this okay? Like, are they going to be okay? And Esther looks in at us and kind of casually says, oh, yeah, in a few minutes they'll say I love you and it'll all be over. And Kelly looks at Esther like she's crazy, doesn't believe a word of what she's saying. But, uh, but we're scraping and, uh, and five minutes later or so the argument kind of winds down. There's a long silence um, where the only thing you could really hear was the scraping and Esther explaining the pictures, and finally, out of out of the quiet, uh, she hears my voice go, "Hey, man, you know I love you," and, uh, and Giuseppe answers, "I love you too, man." And Kelly literally just falls over on the couch, like uh, frustrated and like, "What in the world was that?" Um, but this is another feature um, of almost every uh, design show, and uh, and that's the heated arguments. Um, and I love these in design shows because the cameramen always try to act kind of clandestine. You know, they try to act like they're catching this this argument that was supposed to be um, private. I think they're probably all staged, but you know, they they act like they're they're uh, they're watching these arguments between the designer and the homeowner, or the husband and wife, or between the homeowner and the show host, or whatever. And there's uh, but there's almost always some major conflict, and there's times when you're you're watching the husband and wife go at it, and you're like, I don't know if I want to remodel my back porch. It feels like it's bad for your marriage. Um, but uh, 
But it happens in every single one. You've got the major conflicts, you know, that happen. And, and last week in our Fixer Upper series, uh, we were talking about um, when Israel hit their first conflict in Nehemiah's uh, kind of rebuilding project of the wall. Uh, the enemy saw that good work was, was being done and they flew into a rage and began to mock and threaten the Jews in hopes of slowing down or, or hopefully even halting the project. Um, we even watched as the words of the enemy um, began to have such an effect that the Israelites started saying them. The Israelites started carrying the enemy's fears and doubts and message for them, uh, and they were carrying them through the town. Well, Nehemiah dealt with those conflicts um, last week, but this week in, in week six, the conflict shifts, and the way it shifts is both ancient and contemporary and truly terrifying um, because this week's conflict comes from within. Uh, So let's read our text together. We're in Nehemiah 5. Uh, Although this time, about this time, sorry, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against the nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. They call a public meeting to deal with the problem. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further. What you're doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and and my workers, have been lending to people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day, and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wines, and olive oil. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promises, may God shake you like this from your homes and your property. The whole assembly responded, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. I have to tell you, this uh, chapter is so poignant to today that it's almost creepy. Uh, So I feel like I have to give a few kind of ground rules going into this chapter. Some of the issues that the Israelites face in this chapter have so much to say to our world today uh, that it would be super easy for me to just decide to really lean in on some of these parallels. And, uh, and I will absolutely 
lean in on some of them a little. But right now, um, I think there is so much preaching and so little conversation uh, that's happening out in the world that it's kind of going nowhere. So let's be honest, almost no one on social media is, uh, is engaging in real conversations. They're not engaging um, for the sake of learning or growing or drawing closer uh, to other humans. Uh, everyone on social media has a soapbox, and they're all convinced that they have the fix, and that if everyone would just see things the way they do, uh, the world would be perfect. Uh, so I've actually had to step away from social media for the time being for that very reason. Um, I need to be having real conversations with real people. And so that's what I've been trying to do rather than uh, just partaking of the soapbox uh, culture that's happening right now, just screaming over social media, uh, the social media void, I guess. Um, so this morning as we face some of the parallels between what Israel was facing and what our nation is facing, uh, I just want to draw our attention to the similarities and then maybe leave the solutions um, to the real discussions that we have <clears throat> in much smaller groups. So um, when you feel the parallels happen, uh, maybe just jot them down and, and remember this passage um, for later discussions because uh, I just want to uh, kind of teach what the Scripture says here historically what Israel went through and then maybe allow us um, to let this inform us as we, as we talk and, and grow over some of the problems that we're facing in our world. Um, uh, <laughs> Brent's jumping on and, and uh, telling us to make sure we just see things his way. That's pretty good. Um, so let's start by looking specifically at the, the difference between this week's conflict and last week's conflict. I said before, last week's conflict was with the enemy. Specifically, um, it was with the non-Jewish leaders in the area. But this week's passage starts like this. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. This is new. Um, this isn't the enemy threatening. Um, it's not Jews believing or repeating the enemy's message. This is Jew fighting Jew. This is an age-old story. As Protestants, we can usually trace our denominational background um, through splits and arguments and fights of the past. Um, prior to the Reformation, the church was literally uh, at war with other belief systems, with total other belief systems in the world. And immediately on the heels of that conflict, the church starts fighting with itself. So it, it went from fighting an enemy to, to fighting amongst itself. In that conflict, Protestants began to treat and think of Catholics as the other. They started treating um, other Christians as the enemy. Um, and, you know, not long after that, Protestants started treating other Protestants as the enemy. I mean, after the Reformation, there was like, it took about three and a half minutes before the Protestants started, started fighting amongst themselves, started splitting into new warring factions. This is an age-old story about the second we stop fighting a true enemy, we start fighting with each other. So we've got enough history behind us to know that if we love our country and if we love our churches and if we want what's best for our families and we're set out to even rebuild our own hearts and we want to rebuild what's been torn down, that conflict 
is going to happen. And the temptation to fight our own is going to be there. It's always going to be there. So it's something we have to resist. And so let's look at the nature of Nehemiah's conflict from this chapter and and see what we can pull from it that might help our world. Uh, And first, let's start with this. They were saying, we have such large families and we need more food to survive. As a father of 16 children, I think I just want to park on this verse for about 30 minutes maybe and talk about what, what it's like. I'm kidding. Um, seriously though, as the people continue, they lay out the true depths of their issues. They say, uh, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family of those who are wealthy and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold our daughters and we're helpless to do anything about it for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So this is a truly tragic moment. And I think it's one that we really need to consider today. Because um, this, this is a triumphant moment in the Jewish story. They're putting the wall back up. Like if you remember, Nehemiah's journal starts with the wall being collapsed and the people being disgraced. So the wall is almost done now. Uh, and they have faced off an enemy. They, they've called the people who were living outside the city to come in and live inside protection where it's safe. Jerusalem is once again a walled city with real protection and real opportunities. The nation of Israel is facing uh, becoming a land of opportunity again. This is a monumental moment in the Jewish story. It's truly amazing to be a Jew in Nehemiah's day. So what do you do when there's a group of people who aren't able to take advantage of those opportunities? What do you do when because of the way things were done in the past, there's a group of people who are at risk of being left behind? What do you do when things are infinitely better than they have ever been before, but not for everyone? Boy, those are great questions, right? So that's what Nehemiah is facing. There are people crying out in their frustration. And this isn't like last week. Last week's conflict came from people who either didn't want the wall up or who were intimidated by those who didn't want the wall up. This week the conflict is from people who are absolutely thrilled that the wall is going up. But they're afraid they won't be able to benefit from it. Because oftentimes great changes of fortune... And great opportunities are really only great for those who are in a position to capitalize on them. And these people in this story today aren't. So before I move on, I want to read these few verses one more time. Don't listen to them like they're just people complaining or people who have made bad decisions. Imagine people who are worried that they might be forced to miss the greatest opportunities in recent memory because of the way things went yesterday. Imagine people who are fully supportive of what's happening. They just feel like the thing they've always dreamed of is right in front of them, but they might miss the bus. They might be forced to to miss the opportunities. We have mortgaged our fields and vineyards and homes to get food during the famine. 
Others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy and our children are just like theirs, yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters and we're helpless to do anything about it for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. I love Nehemiah's response. It's so simple and honest. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. This is such a pure and authentic response. If you ever looked at the real problems that we face in our day and age, and you, and you look back at people and situations in the past, and you realize that we have a real mess on our hands today because of oppressive and hateful people in the past. And it just makes you feel angry because you know that you're, we are dealing with the problems that somebody else created. And, and even when we haven't done anything to, to, to create the problem, we're still left with the mess. And it makes us angry. We feel angry. And I'm sure things were more complicated back there in that day um, when a lot of bad decisions were being made. But it doesn't make it easier when we realize that a lot of the issues that we have to sort out today are because of truly hateful people who made bad decisions years and years ago. Anger just sometimes feels like the right response to that reality. It might be impotent, but it still feels right. And Nehemiah feels it. He feels real anger. And no doubt, part of what was motivating him was the fact that everything is going so well. I mean, they're killing it on the wall. Things are so much better than they used to be. Things are getting so much better now because of the way that, 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 that they're working and yet they're living under this cloud of the past. They're living under this cloud of decisions that were made before they rebuilt the wall. So how does Nehemiah deal with this situation? Let's read. After thinking it over, I spoke against these nobles and officials. I told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when you borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you're selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further. What you're doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? The first thing that I want to point out um, as kind of we get into how Nehemiah confronted the oppression in Jerusalem is that um, I don't in any way want to, I guess, uh, trivialize the complexity of what we face today. Nehemiah faced a different situation um, that we face. Uh, so I don't want to give the impression that all we have to do is what Nehemiah did and everything will be all good. Um, but having said this, I think there are some great takeaways here. Um, and so I want to look at these and, and see if maybe we can find some guidance for what we face in our day. Um, but first, let me explain the gist of what was happening in this passage. What Nehemiah is describing here are regular financial um, kind of terms for this period. Um, it was totally normal to charge interest when you loan people money, much like today. Um, and in that day, much like today, if you couldn't afford food 
Um, chances are, in a few months, you weren't going to be able to afford food plus the money to pay back your previous loan plus interest on that loan. If for some reason you can't afford food today, there's very little chance you're going to be able to afford food tomorrow plus pay back the food for today plus pay back this interest. Uh, so when they couldn't pay it back, it was fairly common in that day um, to sell uh, someone or someone's family um, into kind of an indentured servitude, um, slavery. They didn't have like lifelong race-based slavery um, like we've seen um, in America's history. Uh, they had, it was kind of part, it was kind of a financial uh, instrument of that day that to pay back loans, you would enter into kind of a, a, an indentured servitude. You would serve for a certain amount of time and it would pay back the loan. So some people sold fields, some people sold their children, their daughters, some people sold themselves to pay back debt. So Nehemiah attacks this in a couple ways. First, he's buying back people's contracts. He says, we're, we're doing all we can to redeem our relatives. Redemption is a word um, for this kind of ancient process of buying something back. Uh, they actually still use it um, in like pawn shops. You, you pawn something and you go back and redeem it. You pay the, you pay the price and you get your item back. Um, that happened back then. You could, uh, you could buy somebody back. You would pay off their, their note, and then they would be allowed to go free. So Nehemiah was buying people out of slavery. Um, but the problem was they were just winding up back in slavery again. Uh, and that, you know, sounds familiar. Have you ever uh, had like a little bit of money and you, uh, you want to make a difference um, but the, the the problems in the world look like a gaping hole, and the the more money you throw into the pit, uh, the bigger it seems to get. And it's like, man, I, Nehemiah's like, I'm buying people back, and then you know I turn around the next day and I have to buy them back again, and buy them back again, and buy them back again. It's like I can't seem to throw enough money at this problem for it to go away. There, it's just a it's just a uh, a black hole of need, and and that's sometimes feels like the way our world is. Like there's just not enough we can give to make a difference. Um, I could just give and give and give and nothing changes. Well, that's what Nehemiah is saying. He's like, we're redeeming people and then you just keep reselling them back again. We have to do it all over again. In fact, sometimes raising teenagers is like that. It seems like we're just, you know, they're making good decisions and, you know, they're, you, you, you work with them, they start doing good, and, and you start to think of them like an adult, and boom, they're right back in again, and, and you feel like you're starting over again, and then they start doing good again, and boom, they're back. You know. So I think we can, we can feel what Nehemiah's feeling. But then Nehemiah targets the root of the problem. He says, after thinking it over, I spoke out against the nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Nehemiah finds the source of the problem. They're selling their own people into slavery because they couldn't pay back interest. Um, if you drop that one part, the rest starts to become far more manageable. Nehemiah isn't even asking them at first to completely forgive their debts. He's not making the nobles you know, buy people back from slavery. He's, he's just asking them to stop profiting from other people's misfortune. He pinpoints the real source of the oppression and he drags it into the light and he demands better. 
and I've been trying really hard to avoid getting kind of too specific with this message because I kind of feel like this chapter preaches itself. And I don't want this to turn into a political speech, but I will say this. I believe most of the stuff on the table um, to fix some of the deep issues in our country are band-aids. Very few of them are getting down to the root of the problem. I think we're still in this phase where we're trying to redeem people that we're just going to have to redeem again tomorrow. We're, we're putting surface fixes on deep problems. I don't think we're really talking about the real source of most of the issues, at least not on a grand scale. And I don't think I'm smart enough to figure this out, but I do want to say this, something I do want to share. Open Table Community Church um, has a huge heart for the inner city um, and for those who are marginalized and oppressed. Um, we believe the, the real fix is genuine opportunity, that people need a genuine opportunity to succeed. Nehemiah recognized that his people were stuck in a cycle of poverty and all they needed was a chance to succeed. They needed to be let out of the cycle. He wasn't asking the nobles and officials for a big handout, just a chance, just an opportunity. And we've wrestled with the, this reality in terms of what can a small church like OTCC do to make a difference when we decide to, uh, to, to help. And so what we did was we turned to, to an expert, somebody we consider to be an expert. We have this close relationship with a name, uh, woman named Kaylee George. Um, she basically grew up in my house and, uh, and then uh, went away to us. She used to serve in the kids' ministry where I was the children's pastor, and she was at our house every day. Um, Grew up watching my kids and hanging out with my kids. And, and she went away to a Christian college. And while she was there, she was burdened with this deep desire to help the inner city. Um, she had a desire to help the marginalized right here in her own backyard. And so when Kaylee was telling us this, um, we thought it was awesome. Um, and we totally supported her getting a job at, Christian, uh, at a Christian mission in the inner city. Um, and it was all very cool, you know, to, to be Johnson County but still reach out into the inner city. Uh, until Kaylee decided she wanted to move there. Uh, she bought a house um, that was cheaper than most used cars and just submerged herself in inner city life. Um, and it terrified us uh, for her to move down there. But she got a job at City Union Mission and, um, and saw the workings of a Christian mission from the inside. Um, she spent time with the people. She, watched, she worked in the family center um, at City Union Mission. She made inner city friends. She, she built her life in the inner city. And she lived there like this for years. Esther and I would go down and Esther taught some cooking classes and read books to the kids in the, in the mission. Um, I'd go down and do kids programs uh, for the kids in the mission. And all the while, Kaylee was trying to get a feel for how to truly help the inner city. And then finally, after like 10 years or so serving the inner city, Kaylee was ready to start something of her own. And we were ready for her to start a church or maybe her own mission or, or some other form of kind of Christian outreach um, because Kaylee is passionate about Jesus and especially telling other people about Jesus. So we were a little shocked when Kaylee came to us and said, I want to start a school. Um, she wanted to start a real school that heavily emphasized academics. It would be a Christian school for sure where the kids would learn about Jesus, but the main emphasis would be educating a group of young scholars, which is how she refers to them, not students, but scholars, 
so that they could have a genuine fighting chance to make something in the world. So that when they reach an age where they can go to college, they would have a real education, a real opportunity to succeed. I remember Kaylee saying there's no amount of money you can throw at the inner city that can help if we don't give people a real chance to be successful. And so Kaylee started a school. Right now, Urban Christian Academy, the school Kaylee started five or six years ago, um, is the primary ministry that Open Table Community Church supports monthly. Um, And we have since we started. Um, We have a budget, a benevolence budget that we use to help um, people in the community who have needs, but we support UCA every single month um, because we believe Kaylee uh, put in the time to learn from inside the inner city what it would take to really help. And we trusted her assessment. We believed what she said. So a little bit of every dollar you give to Open Table um, goes to Urban Christian Academy. And um, Kaylee is going to come and actually talk to us in three weeks. Um, She's going to come and speak to us at Open Table Community Church about what's going on at Urban Christian Academy. Because Urban Christian Academy, um, it's, it's, it's Open Table Community Church. It's part of us. It's what we... I don't talk about it enough. I really should. Um, but I want you to know that by being a part of Open Table, you are helping. Um, you are helping to support Urban Christian Academy. Um, and if you have a desire to help more, um, look them up online. Look up Urban Christian Academy uh, and kind of get a feel for what's going on there. And then on the 26th, 26th of July, um, Kaylee will be here on a Sunday morning to share with us um, what they're doing. So I don't want you to miss that, especially in this season when you're wondering, you know, what you can do to help the problems going on in our nation. Um, Because I feel like uh, Urban Christian Academy is attacking the root. It's at the root going. um, What people need is a real chance. They need a real opportunity. So Nehemiah goes to the root of the problem here in uh, in verse 7. When he calls the leaders to stop charging interest. Um, But there's something that... um, that I don't kind of want you to miss because Nehemiah doesn't just get to the root of the financial oppression. He goes, um, you know, he goes to the root of all people, the real problem that all of us have. He goes much deeper. He says, then I press further. What you're doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to uh, avoid being mocked by nations? Should you not walk in the fear of our God? I have to give a little background here. The Torah was full of rules. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was full of rules. In fact, one of the nicknames that we've come up with for the Torah, um, which actually includes history and poetry and prophecy, and, uh, it, but also the rules, is we tend to call the whole Torah the law. Um, we tend to think of this entire book as a rule book. It's, it's actually not, but it's one of the things that we've, uh, we've come to call it, is we call the entire Torah the law. But what's ironic is that we tend to draw to a really small list of rules. Um, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't worship idols. Um, this, this really small list out of five whole books that were full of uh, things, and, and we sum it up with this really small, um, iconic list. But what some people don't know is that Torah was actually uh, spent far more time investing in how you do business. Um, how you manage community health practices. They had all kinds of ways. If there's, a, if there's an outbreak 
that actually dealt with outbreaks. That if there's an outbreak, here's how you isolate somebody and here's how you check them um, over and over again to, to see if it's, if it's contagious. And they dealt with, with health practices. They dealt with how to conduct the military. I mean, there was, the, the Torah was full of how to, uh, how to manage um, kind of a God-driven society. Um, the way to buy and sell houses was in there and, and how, to, how to borrow things from your neighbor and give them back properly and what you do if they break while you have them. Uh, and things like this uh, were more heavily emphasized, honestly, than whether or not you should lie and steal. Um, we draw to some of, the, some of the simpler ones, but the Torah is full of advice. And one of the fundamental principles that shows up in the Torah over and over and over again is this one. I, I, I chose a verse from Exodus 22. There's actually tons of them you could look up. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. Do not charge interest. This actually shows up over and over and over again in the law. So what Nehemiah is confronting when he calls out the nobles and officials isn't whether or not it's reasonable when you loan money to get a little something back. He's not attacking this from an economic standpoint. The true root that Nehemiah digs down into is, are you going to do things God's way or your way? Are you going to do what God demands or are you going to follow the culture? That's the root of what Nehemiah gets down to. Is you are doing something. The biblical law was clear and they were clearly breaking it. And Nehemiah draws a line in the sand. See, what happened while Israel spent 180 years as a Babylonian colony was that the Jews had grown comfortable with Babylonian ways. They had adopted the practices of the culture that they were in. In Babylon, charging interest was normal. In fact, it was expected. You'd be a fool not to charge interest. Except that's not how God's people were supposed to act. So Nehemiah asked, should you not walk in the fear of God? He's saying, I know what you're doing is logical. I know what you're doing is pragmatic. What I'm asking is, as we stand here in the grace and provision of God, doing the work of God, rebuilding the wall of God, don't you think you should do it God's way? Here's the thing, trying to rebuild our nation our churches and our families and even our own hearts, but refusing to do it God's way is like throwing our efforts into a black hole. I feel like we could park here for 40 minutes, but I'll just say this. Love God and love people. We know that Jesus summed up the entire Torah with that simple command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're engaged in the fight to stop COVID-19 and, and you're letting that fight drag you away from loving God and loving people, if you're online discussing it in a way that's not showing love for God and love for people, then your efforts are useless. If you're engaged in the fight to make the lives of African Americans more, more just in our country, and you're engaged, or you're engaged in the fight of supporting our quality police officers, and you're allowing that fight to push you 
where you're not loving God and loving people above all else, then you're not helping. Should we not walk in the fear of God? If we don't rebuild God's way, we're no better than the Jews who are selling their family members into slavery, all the while saying, hey, it was in the contract. They knew the deal. I didn't do anything wrong. Everything was above board. Because just because something is legal and above board in our culture doesn't mean that's what God requires of us. And as Nehemiah said, should we not walk in the fear of our God? But there's actually another reason that I believe uh, that we should do it God's way. And that's that God's way works. Look at what happens when Nehemiah confronts the, the lenders. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. What in the world was it about Nehemiah that made people respond to him like that? I mean, these guys just drop an obviously lucrative business just because Nehemiah said to. And you have to wonder why. Well, first, and this is just my opinion, um, is I, I doubt they really had any idea that what they were doing was wrong. I think they were charging interest just because it was the totally normal thing to do in the Babylonian culture. And when Nehemiah called them out, I think they were probably shocked and convicted, not because they were caught doing something sneaky, just because they, they were blind. They didn't realize that what they were doing was wrong. It's super easy to adopt the, the beliefs and the, and the stances of our culture. And sometimes it can be shocking to look at the Scripture and... and and be confronted with what the Word of God says and go, oh, but that's not the way we do things. So I think that was part of it. I think part of it was that they were just shocked uh, that they had been kind of breaking God's way. But I think the real reason they listened to Nehemiah was because there was a wall around Jerusalem now. I mean, think about how things had been just a few months ago in Nehemiah's story. And then look at the city now. Let me put it this way. When you are a blessing, you get more of a voice. When you are a blessing, you get more of a voice. No one inside Jerusalem could argue that Nehemiah was good for the city. He's not leveraging the king's authority. He's not leveraging his wealth. He's not leveraging military might. Nehemiah is leveraging the fact that he's been good for Jerusalem. They're listening to Nehemiah because they knew Nehemiah had the best interest of the city in his heart. And this is a lesson I feel the church desperately needs today. I think we too often uh, allow ourselves to become the world's conscience or maybe the world's tattletale or, or the world's critic. And we relish these jobs. But in, in, in relishing these jobs, we've watched our influence wane. I believe when the church becomes a true blessing, loving people and using the grace and provision of God to rebuild our world, 
the world will start to realize that we are good for the world. And then and only then do we gain the right to say, should you not walk in the fear of our God? We simply have to be a blessing first. We have to prove that we're good for the city. Then we earn the privilege of helping people see that God's way is the best way. One of the people who did this best, I think, is Mother Teresa. She's a big hero of mine. I mean, think about it. She's a tiny, goofy little nun. And she got to advise presidents and emperors and ambassadors. She got to share the way of God with millions of people, shamelessly standing up and declaring the way of God. Why? Why did we listen to her? Why listen? How did this little funny nun get to sit at the seats of power? I think Mother Teresa's influence was based on the fact that no one could doubt that her influence on the world was positive. Mother Teresa didn't leverage wealth. She didn't leverage power. She didn't leverage military might. She just did good in the world. And that alone made people listen to her. So how do we respond to this? For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the final five or six verses in the chapter. I I suggest you um, read the, the last several verses in Nehemiah 5. But what Nehemiah does is he takes inventory of how he's living. And he, and he did it with God. He did it in prayer with God. In Nehemiah's case, it was a great list. Um, he lists all the amazing things he's doing. But he talks about how he never gave, took food allowances. He fed a bunch of people. And we already know he was redeeming fellow Jews. But what's important is the fact that he took inventory of his life. Because it has to start there. We have to start with ourselves. There's not a single person who would have allowed Nehemiah to get in their face if Nehemiah wasn't willing to dig into his own list and do what was right. It is about being perfect. It's about being authentic. It's about being real. It's about genuinely trying to love God and love people, to do the right thing. And when we fail, we own it. We confess, we get back up, and we continue to work to do the right thing over again and over again. Because our world is full of injustice. And we need to be able, like Nehemiah, to step up and say, enough is enough. But we can only call the world to do better if we ourselves are doing better. It starts with us. We have to take real inventory. We have to do better. And then as we do better, we become a blessing in the world. As we become a blessing in the world, the world gives us a voice. We don't stand on the outside and, and criticize. We don't stand on the outside and, and, and scream and rail at what the world is doing. We, we serve and we bless. And through that blessing, we get a voice. We get a seat at the table. So the way I'd love to respond to this service is to pray the prayer of contrition again. We pray it every week during prayers of the people. And these words are super powerful to me. I know sometimes it feels like just rote, that we do it over and over again. But I ask that 
as we put the words on the screen, you might pray them with me. Uh, Because I think if we're going to do any kind of true remodel work on our world, we're going to have to be incredibly humble. Which means making confession a regular part of our lives. We need to confess when we fail so that we can get back up and do better. So as we close, wherever you are right now, in your living room, your bedroom, your dining room, your back porch, your car, wherever you're joining, would you pray this prayer with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. That's what we need to do, church. We need to delight in his will, walk in his ways to the glory of his name.